Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back to the 136th episode of Power Your Parenting Monster Teams podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. So I have a wonderful group of moms in my Power Your Parenting program. And one of my moms in the group shared something like, you know, I didn't have any problems parenting my first two, but my third teen is so different. I have no idea what to do with him. So all my moms out there who have several kids know that though you parent your kids the same and you're the same person, they can be completely different kids and react in very different ways. And this can be so frustrating and maddening. And so why is this? Well, I invited an expert on human and molecular genetics who shares in her newest book, The Child Code, Understanding Your Child's Unique Nature for Happier and More Effective Parenting. In this book, she says, why is parenting so darn hard? Well, it turns out there is a simple answer to that question. The reason that parenting is so challenging is all of that well-meaning advice from your parents and friends and pediatricians ignores one of the biggest factors that affects child development, genes. Our guest, Daniel Dick, PhD, is the Distinguished Commonwealth Professor of Psychology and Human and Molecular Genetics at Virginia Commonwealth University, where she directs a research institute on behavioral and emotional health. She is an internationally recognized and award-winning expert on genetic and environmental influences on human behavior. So welcome, Dr. Daniel Dick. I'm so glad that you can be with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Colleen. 
So do you have kids? I do. I have two. We are a blended family. So I have a 14-year-old son and I have a five-year-old stepdaughter. So we are in the thick of it with one that just started (laughs) high school and one that just started kindergarten. Oh, wow. That's an interesting difference of age for sure. It's fun because they have very different temperaments and personalities. And so (laughs) having been through a lot of developmental stages with my son, it's interesting to now watch it with my stepdaughter as well. In my field, we jokingly say that everyone is an environmentalist until they have their second child, because then you realize I'm doing all of the same things. Why is this child responding so differently? And that's really where for many parents, all the research aside, they realize, oh, wow, there is something inherent in these little people. They are not blank slates that we can just mold into the dreamy human beings we might imagine. They do have their own little temperaments and personalities. And of course, I study a lot of the genetics that are behind that. Yes. So I just started my Power Your Parenting program this week, and I've launched that for many, many times, but I just had my first group call. And it is interesting because I thought about a lot of them because they said, it's my third child that I need help with. So yes. it's it's not all three children that they need help with. It was like the first two were in college and now they're like, they thought they had it made and now they have a more challenging one coming up. First of all, you have a new book. You want to tell uh, the moms what your book is? Sure. So my new book is called The Child Code and it's really grounded in my research, which is about how genetic and environmental influences come together to shape child behavior. And the background behind writing the book is that my son was one of those challenging children. And I found the research to be so helpful in my own parenting. And what I discovered is that a lot of the research from my particular field, which is called developmental behavior genetics, wasn't in mainstream parenting. And so by not understanding how much our kids' genes influence their behavior, I saw so many parents putting additional pressure and stress on themselves and leading them to worry about what they were doing wrong that might be, quote unquote, causing this behavior in their child. And so I really, I wrote the book to bring the research to other parents, both to help take some of the pressure off, but also because by understanding how our kids are wired, it can help us in our parenting because different kids have different needs and there's different strategies that also work better or worse for different kids. Yes. Now you have great information. So in your introduction, you write, why is parenting so hard? It turns out there is a simple answer to that question. The reason that parenting is so challenging is that all of that well-meaning advice from your parents and friends and pediatrician ignores one of the biggest factors that affects child development, genes. So why are genes so important in understanding child and adolescent development? So we know that for any behavior that you're looking at, this is true in little kids, it's true in teenagers, it's true in adults, about half of the differences between us 
in something like impulsivity or anxiety or conscientiousness or any of these behavioral traits. About half of the differences between us are due to differences in our genes, and about half is due to differences in our environments. And very often when we're thinking about our parenting, we're thinking all about the environmental strategies. And the environment is absolutely critical. I don't want anyone to come away thinking that I'm saying that it's not. But often we're ignoring the other piece of the puzzle, which is that our kids are all wired differently. And so by ignoring that, we can make it harder on ourselves. And I do think that that's one of the reasons that parenting can feel so hard is because there aren't one size fits all strategies that just work equally well to all kids. And all kids won't just respond in the exact same way, even when you're doing the exact same thing as a parent. And so it's that interaction between the child and the parent and the fact that it's different for each of our kids and with each adult in their life that makes it all so complicated. Yeah. How do genetics play a powerful role in shaping how we move through the world? So very often in the media, you'll hear about genes for depression or genes for substance use. But the way that we know genes actually work is in much more subtle ways. Genes, of course, don't code for addiction or for temper tantrums or for any of these things that we really care about. What they do is they influence the way our brains are wired. And so in the same way that our genes code for lots of the differences we can see between us on the outside, differences in hair color and eye color and body shape and size, our genes are also influencing how we're wired differently on the inside. And often we don't think about how profound that is. Mm -hmm. So our genes influence the ways our brains are wired and that then can impact how extroverted, you know, how much individuals really draw energy from being around other people versus prefer, prefer more quiet time alone or how emotional kids and people in general are. How quick are they to temper or to, you know, getting really upset about things? How impulsive are our kids? So the way our brain is wired influences variability across all these things that we call temperament or personality. And then that impacts the way that we move through the world. And so it impacts the environments we select into, the way we respond to those environments. And so it creates these feedback loops, but it all starts with our genes and the way our brains are wired. And that's why it's so important to understand how they're playing a role in these developmental cascades that impact our kids. Yes. So I found it fascinating that you're talking about a child's DNA and that 50% genetic material comes from the mom and 50% genetic material comes from the dad. And does that mean that we resemble our parents? So the interesting thing is that the mix you get from biological mom and biological dad can be different for every child. And it's by chance as to what characteristics you get. And that's why you might have hair color that resembles one parent versus another parent, or you might have personality traits that more closely resembles one parent than another parent, or 
sometimes it comes together in unique new ways where both parents are going, where did that come from? And so it really can be a mix, uh, a new and interesting mix for each child. And of course, there's many ways that families are made up. So if you have adopted children or if you have parents who, you know, are same-sex parents or who have children through a variety of different means, then that just means that, you know, sometimes we understand where characteristics in our kids are coming from and sometimes we don't, whether we're biologically related to them or not. Yes. Can you talk about the both and of nature and nurture? Yes. The fact that there was a nature-nurture debate and it has gone on for so year, so many years is really a disservice to our field and to ourselves because, of course, it's both. It's virtually never nature or nurture. It's always nature and nurture because you know, DNA needs an environment in order to grow and thrive and develop. And the environment can actually change the expression of genes. In fact, one of the things I talk about is as parents, one of our big roles can be to tune up or down certain characteristics in our kids. So the environment, of course, can affect our genes, but then the genes also affect the environment. They affect the environments our kids select into. Are they more likely to want to hang out at the library or to want to be with big groups of friends at parties? And then they affect the way that they're responding to uh, the environment. So it could be something like, does a stern look from the parent have them cowering in fear or do they kind of shrug it off and keep right on doing what they're doing? So it's always both because they are intertwined in ways that we couldn't separate even if we tried. Yes. Well, that makes sense to me. So how about temperaments? Are they stable throughout life? So the interesting thing about genetic influences and about temperaments is that they do tend to be stable, but they can change in expression across development. And so what I mean by that is that a highly sociable baby is one who gets delighted when they're picked up and they tend to coo and interact with you know, adults, as opposed to a baby who is more fearful, doesn't like strangers, or a toddler who you know, prefers their parents rather than will just toddle over and join new groups. And then that, that's what it might look like early in development. But sociability, of course, then in a teenager is, do they prefer being out at parties with their friends as opposed to being home with a close friend or two? Are they someone who's more impulsive, who's more inclined to perhaps break the rules or forget the rules in the moment uh, than other kids? So they tend to be fairly consistent. And when we talk about which pieces are genetically influenced, it's the parts that are consistent across time. All of us are fearful in some situations, or we might be a little bit more conscientious in another, in a particular situation. But we all know that there's certain kids that we see these consistent traits that show up across time and across different settings. And those are the ones that are the more stable genetically influenced traits. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So you talk about the goodness of fit. Can you talk about what that means? Yes. So goodness of fit is one of those 
interesting concepts that isn't in mainstream parenting a lot, but is so important. And what it refers to is the fit between a child's natural disposition and their environment. And so certain dispositions do better or worse in certain environments. And so in thinking about teenagers, if you have a highly extroverted teenager, then they tend to thrive when they have opportunity to socialize and meet and spend time with many different friends. Kids who are more extroverted have had more trouble during the pandemic. That has created a poor fit between their environment and their natural tendencies and what they really need to, to thrive and to be happy. Conversely, if we think about the extroversion and introversion piece, kids who are lower on extroversion or who are more introverted, many of them have actually expressed that not having the pressure to always be out at social activities or hanging out with lots of friends or doing what everybody else is doing, some of those pressures that teenagers sometimes feel, and having an environment that has really enabled and in many cases, forced them to have more time alone or perhaps with a trusted friend who is kind of part of their circle has actually been a good fit for them and that they have thrived in that situation. So I think that's one of the ways that we can see how a forced environment in this case has been received differently by kids depending on their disposition. But there's many other examples, whether it's the environment that the parent is providing or whether it's the environment that the school is providing that can be either a match or a mismatch with kids' natural styles and dispositions. And so one of the things we can look for as a parent is if our child is struggling, is there something in the environment that might be contributing to that that is a mismatch with their temperament? Can you give me an example of that, of a parent and a mismatch for the, the kid or the teen? So when our kids are younger, it plays out a lot because we are more in charge of our kids' environments. And so very often as parents, we are putting them in certain environments. Are we taking our kids on play dates with lots of other kids? Are we taking them to the museum where they're running wild and you're having to constantly scold them and you think, well, that was a horrible day? Well, for a parent with a less impulsive child, that might have been a lovely opportunity. So it comes into play a lot when our kids are younger. As our kids are entering the teenage years, they now have more opportunity to seek out their environments. Mm. And so what you see is that kids tend to be more likely to seek out environments that are a good fit for them. And so sometimes as parents, where the mismatch can come from is if our kids have a different disposition, we might actually be pressuring them or worrying about them if they are seeking out environments that are not the ones that we might have enjoyed at that age or we might think are best for them. And so, for example, I'm very extroverted. 
And my son is much more introverted. When he was young, that created problems because I was trying to drag him to playdates with lots of other kids and throw him into the mix, which I thought would have been really fun, but he found very overwhelming. Now that he's a teenager, I find myself sometimes inadvertently encouraging especially now that we had some time out of the pandemic and whatnot over the summer when we could be out socializing. Oh, don't you want to hang out with this friend and that friend? And what if we try and get together with these folks? And he actually was very content spending time with a few close friends. And I had to check myself because I realized I was actually pressuring my child into an environment that was not a great fit with his temperament. And he was thriving in the environment that he had created for himself. So as teenagers, sometimes when we have teenagers, sometimes as parents, we have to step back and actually pay attention to what our kids are telling us, maybe not with their words, but with their actions about what are the environments that are a good fit for them? And also to listen to them because they will sometimes be telling us when there is an environment that they are feeling pressured to join that isn't a good fit for them. Yeah, no, that's great. So I have a good example too. Is one of the moms I worked with, she was very active in college and was super extroverted and she was really involved in a sorority. And, you know, she liked the big, state schools and was, you know, loved that. And so when her daughter was, wanted to go to kind of more of a small private college and kind of more artistic and just wanted a couple of friends and she really thought there was something wrong with her. And so we had to have that discussion. It's just, they have very different temperaments is like what you're talking about. Yes, absolutely. That is a great example. And it is so important to listen to our kids and to think about what is making them happy because very often we are imposing our own ideas. And that's a natural default. We all assume that other people's brains work the way that ours does, the things that make us happy or the things that make us afraid or or fearful or whatever it might be. We tend to assume other people are going to respond in the same way. And that's just very often not the case. Yes. So you say that the role of a good parent is fine tuning your teen's disposition or child's disposition. And what does understanding epigenetics have to do with parenting? So one of the biggest roles that we can play is by understanding our kids' dispositions and what are their natural strengths and what are their, shall we say, areas for growth or potential pitfalls. And so I actually do a lot of research with adolescents and with teenagers, and I love working with teens. Oh, great, great. One of the things that is so exciting about the teenage years is that they do have opportunities to start trying out and exploring things. And they are by default in this life phase, figuring out who they are. And as parents, I think what we want to do is to help them in that process and help them accentuate their strengths and support them in that process. But also Some of our kids are more at risk than others for certain types of outcomes. And 
much of my research focuses on addiction and mental health as well, which we know impacts many of us. And the teenage years, the teenage to young adult years, are the age in which many of these problems start to manifest in kids who are more at risk. And so one of the things that I also talk a lot with parents about is that the kids that we know are more at risk are kids who are either more impulsive and reward-seeking, which can be great in many ways. CEOs and entrepreneurs tend to be more sensation-seeking and willing to try new things. But we also know that in the teenage years, that can lead to potential problems with substance use, with risky sex, other things that we worry about in our teens. So if you have a child who has some of those natural tendencies. If you have the child that has been you know, giving you small heart attacks by jumping out of the top of very tall trees from the time they were little and other kinds of impulsive things, those are things that during the teenage years, we now want to start paying attention to helping them learn to um, accentuate the good things about reward seeking while keeping in check some of these potential risks that they could get themselves into. The other big area where we want to keep an eye out on teenagers is that some of our kids are more naturally prone toward fearfulness and worry. And of course, there's a lot of new pressures and social situations that teenagers has, have to navigate. Social media has opened a whole world of additional pressures and things that our kids are navigating. And for kids who are more naturally predisposed toward worry, anxiety, these are also the kids that we want to be paying attention with and making sure we're helping them with coping skills and strategies to help navigate and manage some of those tendencies. Yeah, no, that's great. You talk about the big three, the dimensions of temperament or the three E's, extroversion, emotionality, and effortful control. So you want to talk about each? Sure. So the big three or the three E's are extroversion, emotionality, and effortful control. And these are three dimensions that kids have been shown to differ on across countless studies around the world and across time. And of course, it's not just kids. We all differ on these um, dimensions as well. So extroversion refers to how much we draw energy from being around others, how much do we like to be in new big groups, try new activities. People who are high on extroversion like all of those things. People who are lower on extroversion tend to prefer quieter activities and more time alone to recharge. They tend to like a trusted friend or two as opposed to wanting to spend time in big groups of people, especially if they don't know them. Many of us talk about extroversion in adulthood as well, too. You know, for an introvert, the idea of spending Friday night at a cocktail party making small talk with people you barely know really makes one want to cringe. Uh, so we think about how there's matches and mismatches between our environment as adults, but often we don't pay enough attention to it in our kids. And from a very early age, kids show these preferences. And this can contribute to sometimes creating areas of upset in our kids when there are mismatches that we're not recognizing, as we talked a little bit about before. 
Yeah. Emotionality refers to the fact that some of us are just more prone to distress, frustration, and fear. So this also shows up very young in kids. And if you have one of these kids, you're probably well aware because they're the ones who throw fits over, you know, what we might say seems like nothing, quote unquote. And this tends to be a pattern that um, we want to work with our kids to develop strategies because being more quick to being upset or getting you know, fearful or angry about things is something that, of course, we have to navigate across their developmental stages. Teenagers have a lot going on. And so um, some emotionality is something that often characterizes this developmental phase. But for the kids who have had um, struggled with emotionality from the time they were little, this can be a particularly bumpy phase. These are the kids that are more at risk for depression and anxiety, as we talked about before. So we want to keep an eye on that when they're entering in the teenage years. And then the last dimension, effortful control, is often colloquial called self-control. I like the term effortful control because it reminds us it takes effort. We all differ on this. And the really interesting thing about teenagers is that they are in a phase that tends to be characterized by more impulsivity and risk-taking in general based on where their brain development is at. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But in addition to the fact that many teenagers are in a phase characterized by more risk-taking than other developmental stages, there's also some kids who are simply more impulsive than others. And so kids who are higher on effortful control are better at managing big feelings. They're better at navigating some of these situations. They're better at focusing their attention on goals and long-term planning, as opposed to kids who are lower on effortful control, who in the teenage years can especially get pulled into whatever kind of shiny new objects or a friend pops by to say, hey, let's go try this, and might have more trouble focusing on school and grades and long-term planning and other things that are very important for our kids in this phase as well, too. Yeah. So I think some of the moms listening might be thinking that one side of the continuum might be better than the other. Like is, is one is like being introverted bad or is less emotional, a better thing or being more effortful, a better thing, you know, like one is not good. And one is what you want. I'm so glad you asked that, Colleen, because one of the things that I always emphasize is there's no such thing as a good disposition or a bad disposition. There are certainly dispositions that make it harder on us parents at particular developmental stages. And I'll also mention that that can change across kids' developmental stages, and it can also change across the parents, too. And so... As an example of that, if you have a child who's very high on emotionality, it might be very hard when they're young and they're throwing temper tantrums and you're having to navigate that. But as they get older and they can start to channel that passion into causes and things they really care about, well, that makes a parent extremely proud. And so that's an example of something how we might think of it as 
bad at one developmental stage, meaning harder on us as parents, but it can certainly be great in many other sorts of ways. And so I think it's always important for us to remember that as parents, that there is good and not so good that comes along with virtually all characteristics and traits. And one of our tasks as a parent is really to figure out what are the good things that come along with that and to help your child recognize those good things in themselves. And what are the not so good things? And then how can you help your child to develop strategies to overcome some of those challenges? No, that's great. So I was going to ask you to how do knowing these help with parenting your teen, but you're kind of answering that right away. So I'm going to get to my next question, which is if your teen is high in emotionality, what can parents do? Like you're talking about the good and the not so good. So one of the challenges with high emotionality is that our natural instinct tends to be to clamp down on our kids, to say, that's not okay, you don't talk to me like that, to start unleashing consequences and punishments on our kid for behaving in a way that we deem is not okay. And if we think about that, what we're doing is we are actually now taking a child who is naturally more prone toward distress and frustration, and in a moment where they are unregulated, imposing more things that will make them more distressed and frustrated. And as you've talked about before on your show, I know this goes nowhere good. It goes nowhere good for the child. It goes nowhere good for the parent but it's a natural response. And so I find that stepping back and remembering, okay, this is not my child trying to be bad, trying to be manipulative. You know, This is not the time to teach them a lesson about the way you treat and you don't treat people. That responding with empathy is almost always the best way to mitigate a situation in the moment. And when I talk to my mom friends, I say, imagine if you're laying into your husband about the pile of laundry that he promised you he would fold and it's still sitting there on the couch a week later and you're extremely upset and frustrated with him. That is not the time for him to say, honey, you really should watch your tone. Let's think about how we have, you know, practice talking to one another and communicating effectively. That's not the time or place. That's just going to make you more upset. What you really want to be is heard for the fact that you're frustrated. And so these are ways that I think that by understanding your child's disposition, and one of the things that I try to do in the book is really give parents concrete strategies. If your child has this particular type of disposition, here are some of the things that we might try to do that actually don't work as well. And here are some of the strategies that work much better. Yeah, I think that's really going to be helpful to moms. So what are things that parents can do to help children build effortful control? Yes. So this is a big one in teenagers. And when I talk to teenagers, one of the things that I talk to them about is that right now, in many cases, their brain is not their friend. And that is because brain development is 
underway and their brains are changing and growing extremely fast at this phase. But it doesn't happen all at once or in a linear way. What it means is that our brain development is asynchronous, meaning certain parts develop before other parts. And the parts that develop first and that are really highly active in the brains of teenagers are the parts that respond to reward. And the parts that are not as developed are the parts that are involved in long-term planning and thinking through the consequences of your actions. And this is true in general of what's going on in brain development in the teenage years. But of course, for our kids who are more impulsive, this is really an issue. And so what happens a lot in the teenage years is they will have a friend say, hey, let's do this, or an opportunity that comes up and doesn't that sound fun? So the friend that stops by and says, hey, let's go out to this party tonight. You think all the immediate rewards are what are going to pop into your brain. That sounds fun. Maybe there's a cute girl or boy that you want to see at the party. You want to spend time with your friends. The parts that don't immediately pop into your brain are what are my parents going to say? Because I had told them I was going to help out with something at home tonight. Or I have a curfew, and this is going to mean that I'm going to be out past curfew. And how mad are they going to be when I get home? And if I get punished next week or the week after is this big event I want to go to, and what if they take away that privilege? Or, gosh, I have a test coming up, and if I don't study for it, then I'm not going to do as well on it, and I really need to do well to get a good grade, to get into this college that I want. So... The long-term planning and the consequences, the things that our kids care about, their brain does not help them immediately retrieve all of those things. And so when I work with teenagers, I talk to them about the fact that step one is recognizing this. And so step two is really training yourself to when all those rewards pop into your brain about how great, all the wonderful, exciting things about this opportunity, which is in front of you. You really have to train yourself to stop and consciously make an effort to think through what are the potential consequences. And so we sometimes talk about them as when-then plans. When I get really excited about something, then I will take five seconds, or I will count to 10, or whatever your teenager decides works for them, to take a deep breath and force myself to think about, are there any downsides to this? And that is really a practice that if they just start putting that in place, something as simple as when then, when I get excited, I am going to force myself to stop and immediately ask, what are the potential downsides? Actually, once the more you practice at that, the more it just becomes routine and habit. So it's something that our kids really have to work at at this phase because it doesn't come to them naturally. That's great. Well, your book is filled with lots of very practical advice. And so I do encourage the parents to, if you're having a hard time, like understanding why is your kid wired the way they are, I would encourage you to just buy this book because it's super helpful. And I think the great message that you have in this book is that is to really respect our differences, you know, the differences of your kids, the difference between you and your kids, and to, and to look for the strengths, because I think often those differences are uh, an impetus for drama and 
frustration and just with this awareness that it's not good or bad, it's just different. You could build some really wonderful connections in your family. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. And (laughs) I really hope that by understanding how our kids are wired, that it can lead to better relationships because very often we are putting motivations into our kids when they might be thinking something very different. And so helping to understand how they're wired can really help us as parents and in nurturing our relationship with our kids. Absolutely. So if people wanted to contact you, how could they contact you? So they can look me up at my website, danielledick.com, or follow me on social media where I have lots of snippets coming out from the book and other areas of my research about really how to, how understanding genetic and environmental influences can help us in parenting our kids. That's great. Well, I will put your social media stuff in the show notes and I'm sure they can buy your book anywhere. Yes, it is available anywhere, or if they want to go to thechildcode.com, then there's a number of links to different places where you can buy the book, and you can also put in your contact information and get free parenting manuals that I'll send out as well. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. Well, thank you so much for having me, Colleen. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere, You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.